0: Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. If you've been attending here for a while, we've been in a study of Luke's gospel, and typically each week I just take the next paragraph, and we work verse by verse through it, and I uh, teach through that text. Today is going to be much more of a uh, theological study on an issue that was raised last week. Uh, And and really, this is the conclusion of last week's message. I told you I didn't want to keep you all in the heat too long last week with our AC down, uh, so I kind of split my sermon in two. And so last week we worked through those first nine verses of Luke 13 that Marvin just read, and, uh, and work through, you know, verse by verse through the text. Now we're going to kind of give the, the conclusion of the sermon, which is going to be a lot of clarifications and uh, hopefully answering some questions. If you missed last week, I'm going to give a quick review of what we uh, saw. The basic teaching in those first nine verses of Luke 13 is this. Uh, all of us are sinners. All of us deserve the judgment of God for our sins, and so we must prepare to stand before God. And the way that Jesus tells us to prepare is Repentance. He says twice in those verses, unless you repent, you will all perish. And repentance, we saw last Sunday, is a change of heart. It is an inward uh, change, a reversal that results in a change of life. It is turning from sin to Jesus Christ. That was all last week. Now, this brings up some questions because over the last uh, couple of centuries in America, some shifts have taken way in the way that uh, churches talk about salvation. It's often posited in Christian culture today that if you pray the sinner's prayer, uh, you'll be saved. If you're not familiar with this, the idea is basically that salvation is a gift, and so all you have to do is uh, receive it. You pray, you ask Jesus to forgive your sins, and then he's uh, basically obligated to do so. And as long as you prayed that prayer at one point in your life and prayed it sincerely, uh, your ticket's punched, you're on your way to heaven, you're good to go. That is the common uh, thinking in Christianity today. I won't ask you how many of you have heard this, uh, but my guess is many of us have. Another common phrase in this discussion is faith alone. Uh, Salvation is by faith alone. And again, if you have a Protestant church background, you've more than likely heard this. Uh, The problem with that phrase, as with many phrases, is it means different things to different people. Uh, So some people, when they say faith alone, and this is, I think, the common idea, at least today, is it means believing the gospel, or trusting in Christ. And so uh, basically that sort of idea renders repentance as unnecessary to salvation. Uh, That all you have to do is believe in Jesus, believe the gospel, something like that, uh, and you're a Christian, regardless of whether or not you repent. Uh, And along with this comes the idea of eternal security. And again, uh, different people mean different things when they use that phrase. And so we have to ask uh, for a much more precise definition here. But often eternal security is a teaching that simply says uh, you can't lose your salvation. So as long as uh, you believed in Christ or or you did at one point in time in your life, as long as you prayed that magic prayer as a kid, uh, you're saved no matter how you live. If you live for Jesus, great. uh, But even if you live like the devil, you're still a Christian. And some have taken this even to the extreme of saying that a person can walk away from the faith later in life and still be saved. You could become an atheist, but you're still going to heaven because at one point in time you believed. All of these I will do my best to address uh, as we go this morning, but I want to start by just asking, uh, what does the Bible say? What does scripture actually teach us about how someone can be saved, how someone can have their sins forgiven, and how they can have eternal life? Understanding, as we saw last week, we're all sinners, we all justly deserve the judgment of God for our sin. What must be done to avoid this judgment? And so this is where we're going to start. How can someone have eternal life according to the Bible? And the first thing to say is we need to look at all of the Bible, not just a verse or two. Uh, This is where we get out of balance theologically when we emphasize one verse to such an extent that we ignore dozens of other verses. Uh, It would be easy to look at Acts 16, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Oh, that's all there is to it. Uh, But, you know, you had that one moment of belief in your life, and so you're good to go. But such a conclusion would be ignoring many other texts, including the one we just read in Luke 13, which says, unless you repent, you will perish. And so nothing in that text is said about believing at all. Uh, It would be equally wrong to read Luke 13, 3 and say, okay, all we have to do is repent. We don't have to believe anything about the gospel. Uh, So my point in all of that is just to say, we need to look at all of scripture Not just a couple of verses that we like out of context and ignore the rest of the New Testament. We need to ask, what does the entire Bible teach us about how someone can be saved? The first component of conversion, according to Scripture, is belief. And since this is less controversial, pretty much all Christians agree with this. I'm not going to spend very much time on it. But just to read Romans 1 verse 15, Paul writes, "'I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel.'" For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So clearly then, in order to be saved from our sins, we must believe the gospel. And the question then should be, what's the gospel? Uh, what is Paul referring to here? Paul defines the gospel for us in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is, according to Paul, what you have to believe in order to be a Christian. First 1 Corinthians 15.1 One must believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. That he died for our sins in verse 3, which is basically saying that Jesus died in our place on the cross. He took our sins, took the punishment that we deserved on himself. That is the gospel of Jesus. That is the good news. And so the first thing the Bible teaches we must do to be forgiven is believe this gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, he died in our place, and he rose again from the dead. Second, Uh, Scripture teaches us to be saved, we must trust in Jesus Christ alone. You cannot be saved apart from Christ. Uh, If there were other ways to heaven, if other religions uh, could take you to the presence of God, why did Jesus have to come and die? Uh, If there was some easier way, why would he do that? Salvation is through Christ. He is the only way. Acts 4.11 says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there was salvation in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So trusting in Christ is essential to salvation. It's not enough to just say you have faith. Your faith must be in Christ. In John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Turning to Christ means turning away from everything else. Uh, To be a Christian means you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Your works cannot save you. Uh, Your religion cannot save you. Being baptized cannot save you. Being a member of a church cannot save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you from your sin. And so trusting in Christ is, uh, we can make the analogy, it's like trusting in a parachute. If you're still in the plane, you're not really trusting the parachute. Uh, Placing your faith in that parachute only happens when you jump out. And everything that you have is on that that one parachute to save you. And that's the way we should think of placing our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about uh, anything else but Christ. 2 Timothy 3.15, uh, Paul says, How from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings of Scriptures, uh, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So first, to be saved, we must uh, believe the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, he died in our place, and he rose again from the dead. Secondly, the Bible teaches we must place our faith in Jesus to save us. Number three, the Bible teaches that we must repent, and this is the missing element in many gospel presentations today. It's not enough just to believe the gospel. It's not enough to uh, just believe that Jesus is the way to heaven. You must also turn from your sin to follow Jesus Christ. Mark 1 verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So you see, it's not one or the other. It's both of repentance and faith in Christ. Yes, we have to believe the gospel to be a Christian, but we must also repent of our sins. And this issue of repentance, again, I'm going to spend more time on because for whatever reason, many Christians believe you can be saved without any change of your life whatsoever. You can believe in Christ. You can pray the prayer and go on about your life with no concern for your sin. But the Bible makes clear from beginning to end, you must repent to be forgiven. You must turn from your sins and embrace Jesus as your Lord. We saw last week, repentance is, starts with remorse for sin, regret for our sin, which leads to us turning from sin and deciding to follow Jesus. It's a 180, turning from our sins and from serving our own desires to obeying Christ. This has always been a, true, a component of true conversion. Even in the Old Testament, this is clear. The prophet Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 55 or seven, he writes, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So according to Isaiah, God will pardon or forgive the one who turns from his wicked ways to God. Uh, John the Baptist, of course, taught repentance. When you turn the page into the New Testament, he's the first person you kind of meet uh, in in the storyline of the Gospels is John the Baptist. And we find very clearly that he taught, one must repent to be saved. Luke 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? They're asking, what do we do to escape this coming judgment for our sin? Verse 11, he answered them, pray the sinner's prayer. (laughs) Is that what it says? Uh, Believe in Christ. No, he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Uh, Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to. Soldiers also asked him, "And, And we, what shall we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Clearly, John the Baptist's message was one of repentance, And he makes clear, repentance is not just an internal decision, but it will also result in a change of behavior. He says, you're you're turning from sin, stop doing that, start doing this. There should be a transformation if you've truly repented. Then Jesus comes along a little uh, while later after John the Baptist's ministry, and Jesus is preaching the very same message, that sinners must repent. Repent. Uh, John 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In our text that we saw from last week, Jesus clearly said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so we have the Old Testament teaching of salvation. We must repent. We must turn from our wicked ways. We have John the Baptist saying, if you want to be saved, turn from your sin. And we have Jesus saying, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Okay? Okay. Uh, After Jesus rises from the dead, he commissions the apostles, the 12, to go out and spread the very same message. We see this in Luke 24. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus says, I died, I rose from the dead. And now it's time for you to preach to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, that people should repent of their sins in order to be forgiven. And this is exactly what the apostles did. Uh, Just fast forward to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Peter's famous sermon, where he's preaching to the crowds about Christ and how he was the Messiah. And just listen to the conclusion of this sermon, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, the people in the crowd, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So, these are, are the people in the crowd realizing that they had killed Christ, the, their Messiah. Uh, they were convicted and they say to Peter and the apostles, What should we do? And Peter doesn't say, Pray this prayer. He doesn't say, Just believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven. No, he says in verse 38 repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them, repent. And baptism was an outward way to show that you were repenting, that you were turning from your sins and embracing Jesus as your Lord. I hope by now the point is pretty clear, that repentance is a part of genuine conversion to Christ. The idea that you can just pray a prayer at one point in your life or believe in Jesus and all your sins are forgiven, goes against everything the Bible clearly teaches. The Old Testament, John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, all taught that one must turn from their sins and embrace Christ as Lord in order to be saved. And though it may have become unpopular in American Christianity to say that, it could not be clearer in Scripture. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. So, according to the Bible to be saved, to have our sins forgiven, to be given eternal life, we must first believe the gospel. We must believe that Jesus died for our sins in our place, that he took our sins on himself on the cross, uh, that he rose the third day. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you, and you must repent of your sins and submit to Christ's lordship. That is what the Bible teaches is required for a person to have their sins forgiven and to be given eternal life. Now, Uh, Let me just address a few misconceptions. These are very commonly taught things about salvation. I mentioned a few of these already, but let's go a little bit deeper. First, the sinner's prayer. Uh, In my opinion, this is the most dangerous false teaching the church possibly has ever embraced. Maybe second only to infant baptism, uh, because both of them, And by infant baptism, I mean the way the Catholics teach it, not the Presbyterian, our our brothers in Christ over there. Um, Catholic baptism teaches, basically, that if you are baptized at eight days old, you can live like the devil and you still go to heaven because of the water. Uh, And the same type of concept is taught in many Baptist churches with regard to the sinner's prayer. That if you prayed this prayer at four years old, doesn't matter how you live, you're going to heaven. You got your ticket punched, you're good to go. And this is an incredibly dangerous teaching. It's really bad to tell someone something that's not true, but it's especially bad uh, to tell someone something untrue about whether or not they're headed for heaven and hell. And this is why I take this so seriously. Telling someone that their sins have been forgiven because they prayed a prayer, to me, is like telling a cancer patient they're fine because they ate a salad for lunch. Uh, It's not true, it's not biblical, and it's not loving. And so where does this come from? Where do we get this idea of the sinner's prayer? Uh, Best I can tell, it comes from Romans 10, which says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So this is often used to say uh, you believe the gospel in your heart, and then you have to confess with your mouth, meaning pray a prayer to God. Uh, except that's not what it means, (laughs) as is explained by the preceding verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. okay, So uh, to be saved, you believe the gospel, and then you verbalize a commitment to follow Jesus. That's what it means to repent. You turn from your sins, and he is your Lord, he is your master. Uh, This is one reason when we baptize someone, we ask questions, sort of like, a wedding ceremony, right? When you, when you ask someone, do you take this person to be your bride? You, you make them verbalize a commitment. Now, I've only baptized uh, two people. They're both here in this room. You all are special. Uh, but anyone that I would baptize in the future, I would do the exact same thing I did with, with both of you, is ask you. Uh, I asked three questions. First, do you believe Jesus died on the cross uh, to save your sins? Uh, secondly, have you personally trusted in Christ alone to save you? And third, is it your desire to live for Jesus Christ and please him? Okay, some iteration of those three questions. Because I want you to verbalize outwardly in front of people that Jesus is your Lord. And that's what I take Romans 10, 9 to be saying. We must confess Jesus as our Lord, as our master. So it's not about praying a prayer. Second, a common misconception about salvation is that it is merely belief that saves. And this is often stated as uh, salvation by faith alone. Now, as I said before, Uh, Depending on what you mean by that, I may agree. Okay, So I'm not just standing up here saying, I don't believe salvation is by faith alone. It depends on what you mean. We've got to be more specific. Uh, Because Paul does say, we are not saved by works of the law, but by faith. So we don't earn salvation by doing good works. Rather, our faith saves us. This is what was meant by the reformers uh, who were arguing against the Roman Catholic belief in the the Middle Ages that you do certain works in order to merit or earn your way to heaven. And the reformers rightly said, no, you cannot earn salvation by works. And that's what they meant when they said by faith alone. That's not what most people today think. When we say faith alone, most of the time that phrase is taken to mean we are saved by simply believing in Jesus. We don't have to repent. We don't have to live for Christ at all. Uh, It'd be great if you do that, but it's not necessary for salvation. That's what most people mean when they say faith alone. Uh, We're going to walk verse by verse here through James chapter 2 and just see if this is biblical. Uh, If you have questions about this, let me encourage you on your own time. Go back and read through James 2 because it it could not be clearer. James 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Answer, no. Uh, In Greek, there's a couple of different ways to ask a rhetorical question. And depending on the first word, it's sort of like in English, we would say, uh, that faith can't save him, can it? And so we're implying the answer, no, in the very way that we ask the question. And so James is saying, somebody who says, I have faith in Jesus, but has no works to back it up, is not saved. And the works here that he's talking about is good deeds. If you say that you believe in Christ and there's no evidence in the way you live your life, That is not saving faith, because true saving faith transforms people. He gives some examples, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Okay, that's a pretty clear illustration. If a brother in your church is uh, starving and you say, uh, praying for you, brother, but you don't do anything to help, uh, what is that accomplishing? Nothing. Nothing. Verse 17, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, this is critical to understand. Works is the evidence of faith. James says, I will show you, I will demonstrate my faith in Jesus by the way that I live. Okay, in verse 19, Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the devils believe and shudder. Okay, this, this strikes a death blow to the idea that all we have to do is believe in Jesus. Uh, guess who believes in Jesus? Satan, the demons. Guess who believes that Jesus died on the cross and rose again? Uh, Satan, <laughs> he was there, he knows that that's true. But believing that that is true does not save. So there's more to salvation than merely believing in Jesus. Verse 20. You want to be shown, you foolish person, James says, that faith apart from works is useless. And so he says, I'll give you another example uh, from the Old Testament, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, the word justified there is very important. It means uh, basically to be declared righteous. Justification is synonymous with what we think of as uh, conversion, that moment in time when God forgives our sins and declares us righteous on account of Christ's death on the cross and our repentance and faith. And so he says, Abraham was justified, declared righteous by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So Abraham didn't just believe in God. His faith in God was demonstrated by his obedience. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, that's huge. And this is one reason that I am hesitant. Uh, I just want to wave a yellow flag over the use of the phrase faith alone. The only time in all of the Bible that the phrase faith alone is found is right here in James 2, when James says a person is not saved by faith alone. Okay, so maybe that's not the best phrase to use when we talk about salvation, if the only place it's found in the Bible is when James says, you're not saved by faith alone. Uh, Why not use biblical language, repentance and faith? It's found all throughout the New Testament. We're saved by repentance and faith. It's not complicated. Uh, There's no qualifications needed. Uh, So I prefer that type of language. James is arguing here that if you claim to have faith in Jesus and you think you're saved because of that, but there's no works that demonstrate your conversion to Christ, you are not truly saved. Okay, And this is the last misconception that I want to address, and that is the idea that if you're saved, it doesn't matter how you live. You can live a life of sin, and as long as you're a Christian, you still go to heaven. And we could stop here at James and say that's not true, because James makes it clear. If your faith has not transformed your life, it wasn't saving faith. Let's look at a few other texts. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one will see God who doesn't live a holy or set apart life. Meaning, if your life has not been changed since your conversion, you've not been converted. And some theologically minded person out there might be claiming this is positional sanctification, not progressive. And if those terms mean nothing to you, don't worry about it. But if you're thinking that, just read the first word of the verse, strive. We are to strive for this holiness, or else we won't see the Lord. This is all about the way that we live our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he lists all of these sinful lifestyles and says, uh, if this describes the way you live, you're not on your way to heaven. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. No one who is a Christian lives like that. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And this shows us the power of the gospel. Such were some of you, but then you got saved. There is no person so sinful that God won't forgive them if they would repent and believe the gospel. And there is no person so sinful that God doesn't have the power to help them overcome their sin. A lot of us believe that first part, right? God will forgive anybody, no matter how wicked, no matter how sinful. And that's true. But he doesn't just forgive us so that we can go to heaven and continue living in our sin while on earth. The gospel transforms sinners into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says of Jesus, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. So Jesus died on the cross, not just to forgive your sins and send you to heaven, but to transform your life here on earth. He came to give abundant life, so you might no longer live for yourself and live in sin, but for Christ who died for your sake. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is how you can tell a true Christian. It's not complicated. It's not about praying a prayer sometime in your past. It's not about, well, I just believe in Jesus and I I take the label of Christian on myself. No, true Christians follow Jesus. If you're not following the commands of uh, of the Bible, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter what you may say you believe. If you've been saved by repentance and faith in Christ, you will be different as a result. So works follow true salvation. Now, we need to clarify a few things here, because as I say all of that, and I show you those things from Scripture, you may be thinking, this sounds like works salvation. This sounds like, uh, you know, a contradiction of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So let's go there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but we're not going to stop at verse 9, we're going to keep going to verse 10, because I think we need to see all three verses here to understand what Paul is saying. So basically what we're going to find is Paul says in these verses, we are not saved by our works. We don't earn salvation by works, but we are saved in order to do good works. Okay. So we're not saved by the works. The works follow salvation. Verse eight of Ephesians two, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we aren't saved by doing good works, but as a result of salvation, we will do good works. Okay, the works come after conversion. They are not the cause of salvation, rather they are the result. Works do not merit salvation. They are the evidence that salvation has truly taken place. You don't earn forgiveness by doing enough good deeds But if you've experienced the transforming power of the gospel, you will be different as a result. And that difference will manifest in your actions. So I hope that's clear. Um, It is true to say we cannot earn salvation by our works. Paul wrote in Galatians 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And this makes perfect sense. No amount of good can undo the sins that we've committed. If somebody was charged with murder, he couldn't simply say to the judge, Uh, Those other, you know, other than those three people that I killed, I've been a very good citizen, uh, very law abiding. I give to charity. I do all of these. I even voted for you. Okay, none of that matters. If you committed sin, uh, no amount of good deeds can somehow outweigh or erase that. And so we cannot be saved. We cannot earn salvation by doing good works. But it is also not true that a truly saved person won't live any differently as a result. And this is where I think we need to have a balance. Yes, we are not saved by doing good works. We don't earn salvation by works. But if we've truly been saved, there will be works that follow. Galatians 5, verse 19. The works of the flesh are, uh, I'm sorry, now, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So people who live in this lifestyle are not Christians, he says. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of somebody who has the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, So he's saying, I I have warned you before and I'm warning you again, those who live in sin will not be in the kingdom of God. Those are not saved. But the fruit of the spirit, the evidence of somebody who has the Holy Spirit is that second list. And fruit is an important concept there. Uh, The seed of salvation, we could say, is faith and repentance. That's how the plant comes into existence. The tree in this analogy would be salvation. And so the fruit of salvation is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. Uh, The fruit comes after the plant has sprouted. It's not the cause of it. It's the evidence. And it shows what kind of tree it is. Jesus used this analogy in a text we looked at last week in Luke 6, where he says, a good tree produces good fruit. Uh, A diseased tree produces bad fruit. And so if you want to know what sort of tree it is, just look at the fruit. If you want to know what kind of, uh, if you want to know if someone is a Christian or not, look at the fruit. Is your life characterized by sin or righteousness? And so the Bible does not teach uh, works salvation. We do not earn salvation by our good deeds outweighing our bad or anything like that. Our sins were paid for when Jesus died on the cross, not when we did enough good stuff. But after we repent and embrace Christ, he changes us. And if we've been truly saved, there will be evidence of that transformation in the way that we live our lives after salvation. John MacArthur wrote a very well-known book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And in it, he writes this. I have never taught that some pre-salvation works of righteousness are necessary to or part of salvation. But I do believe without apology that real salvation cannot and will not fail to produce works of righteousness in the life of a true believer. There are no human works in the saving act, but God's work of salvation includes a change of intent, will, desire, and attitude that inevitably produces the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, here's another analogy, and analogies are not perfect, but maybe this will help. Uh, Do you have to blink in order to live? (laughs) Of course not. Uh, But do you? uh, How about this? Do, Do you blink in order to keep yourself alive? If you were to stop blinking, would you die? Of course not. Blinking, however, is an evidence of life. I mean, have you ever known anybody who was alive and never blinked? Uh, That's sort of analogous to the way works relate to salvation. We don't do good works to have eternal life. But if we have eternal life, there will be those good works that are the evidence of life in us. So you're saying we have to uh, work to earn our salvation? No. Okay, you're saying uh, the doing of good works keeps us saved? No. No. So it doesn't matter at all if there's works. We, we still go to heaven. Wrong. Get it? Is that clear? <laughs> okay, works are the fruit of salvation. We don't earn salvation by them. We don't keep ourselves saved by doing enough good works. But if we are truly saved, then our lives will be different as a result. Let me clarify one other thing. You cannot lose your salvation. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You don't do good works in order to stay saved. As if, uh, you know, you stop doing the the good works, you stop living a certain way, and then you lose your salvation. That would be like saying, you better keep blinking or else you're gonna die. Blinking happens if you're alive. (laughs) Good works happen if you're saved. John 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the true sheep of Christ are the ones who follow him. And to them, he gives eternal life. Christ protects them from falling away. They are secured in the hand of the Father, so they cannot lose their salvation. Uh, But they are the ones who follow Christ. And so our works simply demonstrate whether we've been saved to begin with. John 15, verse 8, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The proof of if your faith is real is if you're bearing fruit. John 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If somebody abides in Christ, if they remain in the faith that they claimed at, at one point in time, then they're true disciples. If someone falls away from the faith, they haven't lost their salvation. They were never truly saved. And the falling away from the faith is simply demonstrating that they were not truly converted to Christ, because no true follower of Jesus will fall away. 1 John 2.19 says this clearly. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that that they all are not of us. So somebody who stops following Christ, uh, no longer lives as a Christian, becomes an atheist, whatever, they didn't lose their salvation. They were never truly converted. Because those who are true Christians, those whom God has awakened their heart from sin to follow Jesus, they will not fall away. Not because they're so committed. Not because we're keeping ourselves saved. But rather, God preserves those who are his followers. He keeps us from falling away from our faith if it is true saving faith. Paul said to the Christians at Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God transformed you at the moment of conversion to Christ and he's not going to give up working on you. He'll keep sanctifying you until the end of your life. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are kept by God's power, are being guarded, I'm sorry, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, in verse 3, Peter says there, it was God who caused us to be born again, and in verse 5, it is God's power now that is keeping us in our faith. So we don't earn salvation by works. Rather, works are the evidence or the fruit of salvation. We cannot lose our salvation because it is God who is keeping our, uh, his children from falling away. If, if, salva- if keeping our salvation was up to me, uh, I would have lost it a long time ago. Okay? It is God who keeps us. It is God's power that keeps us from falling away from our faith. Last clarification. Last clarification. We will not be sinless in this life. I've been stressing this morning that true Christians act like it. If you've been born again, there will be evidence in the way that you live your life. However, that is not to say that if you're truly following Jesus, you'll never sin. Rather, true Christians don't live in continual, unrepentant sin. We are still flawed. We are still broken people. But there will be a radical change in the way that we live. I think this balance is well articulated in First John, for instance, verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses, cleanses us from all sin. If we, say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, if we've been truly cleansed by Christ... If we've been transformed by the gospel, we will walk in the light and not in darkness. But then he immediately says, that doesn't mean we have no sin. Anybody who says you, you don't sin anymore is a liar according to 1 John. So it's not perfection, it's direction. Uh, we still stumble at times into sin, but our Christian life does, uh, is different as a result. And so this is the way that, that we live our Christian life. We try to follow Christ, we try to obey his commands, And yet we find ourselves stumbling into sin. Jesus pulls us out. He brings us back to repentance. And it's not too long before we keep falling down again. And so the life of a Christian is one of ongoing repentance. It's not that you're sinlessly perfect because you're you're a Christian now. No, you're still going to sin. However, Christ will continue to bring you back to repentance. He'll pull you out of that ditch every time you fall. Now, what does this mean for assurance? How can we know if we're truly saved or not? Uh, It's really easy to be confident about your salvation if you think it's all about the sinner's prayer, right? Because then it's, well, I I prayed the prayer, so I'm saved. Uh, If that's all there is to it, then assurance of salvation is is pretty straightforward. But if we're saying that uh, repentance is required, that our lives will be different and transformed as a result of true conversion, how then can we know if we've been saved? 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, That you may know that you have eternal life. So in the book of 1 John, the apostle is writing to believers in Christ. And he's he's particularly interested in helping them to know whether or not they have eternal life. He says clearly there, you can know. You can have confidence and assurance that you are truly born again. And I'm writing this letter to you so that you will know whether or not you have eternal life. So that's the, the point of 1 John. Now, what does he tell us? How can we know this? There's much we could look at in the book, but just consider a couple of examples. First John 2, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. Okay, so here it is. Here's how you can know if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. This is pretty straightforward. How can we know if we've been born again? How can we know if we have eternal life? John says, look at the way you're living. Do you keep his commandments? If you do, then you know Christ. If you don't, then you don't. Uh, so our works then are the evidence that we should be examining to know if we've been converted. Again, this is not to say we earn salvation by works. Rather, we can know if we've been saved by looking at the transformation in our day-to-day living. First John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, Jesus you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. How can you know if you've been born again? Do you practice righteousness? In other words, true Christians act like it. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. This should be obvious, but in our culture today, a lot of people want to slap on the label of Christian, but they don't live according to the Bible. And that's not a Christian. It would be like somebody saying, I'm a Muslim, but I don't follow the commands of the Quran. Uh, saying you're a vegetarian that eats cheeseburgers. That's the weirdest vegetarian I've ever heard of Uh, saying you're a Democrat, but you vote Republican every election. You're not a Democrat. Okay. A true Christian follows Jesus. And so our actions should back up our claims. You can't claim to be a Christian and then not follow the teachings of the Bible. Now we've gone through a lot of important theological distinctions. I know this has been a very different sermon than what I, I typically give you. I want to wrap up. Today by just considering one concept a little bit more broadly kind of taking a step back looking at the forest here And this will tie together much of what we've studied today Jesus died on the cross to save sinners his death Paid the penalty for sins that we've committed most of us understand this But one of the questions i'm afraid many christians get wrong is what is it that jesus saves us from? When we talk about being saved, I always want to say "Saved from what and most people think "Saved from hell We think salvation is just fire insurance. It gets us out of hell and into heaven. And if that's what you think, I think you've missed a big part of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died on the cross and rose again to save us from our sin. Hell is a consequence of sin, true, but salvation is way more than just we get to go to heaven now. Jesus saves us from our sin and brokenness in three stages. If you want the fancy theological terms, it would be justification, sanctification, and glorification. And here's what that means in in simple terms. First, we believe the gospel. We trust in Christ to save us. We repent of our sins. That's conversion, our conversion to Christ. At that moment, we are forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. Our record of sin is washed clean, and we're given eternal life. But that's just the beginning of salvation. The second stage is sanctification, our growth over time. This is a process Uh, Where we are becoming more and more like Jesus, and this is the rest of our lives here on earth. Uh, God is continuing that work of saving us from our sin, making us more and more like Christ in our day to day living. We're not perfect, uh, like the like the sheep. We still stumble, we still fall into sin, but Jesus brings us back. He pulls us back to repentance, and so we're growing spiritually, becoming more like Christ throughout our life. Then comes the final stage of salvation. Uh, what would be called glorification. This is where we enter God's presence. At death, the Bible says, we are immediately brought to heaven. And at that moment, our sin is completely eradicated. So unlike this current stage we're in right now, where we're still stumbling and wavering and falling into sin, on that day, when we reach heaven, we will be freed from sinning ever again. So yes, Jesus offers us salvation from hell. That's true. But salvation is way better than just that. He offers us salvation from our sin. God wants to take you as the broken, sinful person you were, form you throughout your life on earth to be more like Christ, and then take you to heaven where you'll be freed from all sin forever. And this is the story of the Bible. This is how God is working to repair the relationship that Adam and Eve broke. If you open your Bible just to the beginning in Genesis, the first few chapters, you find Adam and Eve uh, fall into sin And they curse the entire human race. And all of the the problems that we see in our world today are results of sin. Uh, Our broken relationship with God, our broken relations with each other, all of it is a result of Adam and Eve's sin. And the story of Jesus is all about God paying our sin debt for us, forgiving our sins, and then freeing us from sin so that we can be with him again. It's restoring the Eden ideal where we can have that relationship with Christ. And so salvation is not just about uh, getting us out of hell and into heaven. Salvation is about getting us out of our sin. Titus 2.14 says of Christ that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus did not just die to save you from hell. He died to transform your life here on earth as well. God loves us so much that he takes us just as we are, but he also loves us so much that he won't leave us just as we are. Father, we thank you for this unspeakable gift of grace, your salvation. Pray, God, that you would help each one of us as we wrestle with these, uh, at times, complicated, difficult subjects to rest in the fact that you saved us, you called us, you forgave our sins, and it is you who is at work in our lives right now, making us more and more like Christ. I pray that you'd help each of us to embrace these truths and to seek to follow you. Uh, Help us to examine our lives even now, whether we're in the faith. The New Testament says many times that we ought to be doing this regularly. I pray that uh, for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, uh, that they would right now repent of their sins, that they would turn to you in faith, and that they would commit their lives to your service. And for those of us who are Christians, God, may this be a reminder uh, and, and something that hopefully will provoke us to turn from any sin we're involved in right now, that we would give ourselves anew and afresh to you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.